0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: I'm hanging in there, man. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, you know, kids in daycare, teaching in the bottom of a basement. I've caught some kind of illness, but I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll only snot on my own microphone, not yours, so it'll be okay.
1: Much appreciated. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> How about you? You've been traveling, right? As always.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I've been traveling uh, most recently to Lubbock. The next trip is down to Houston. Uh, but also, you know, holding on, trying not to blow away.
0: Um, <laughs> it's been crazy. The weather's been crazy. I didn't want to be the one to bring it up, so because I am always the one to bring it up. But you, you had some uh, close calls, yeah? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we had uh, longest track tornado in this area of the state's recorded history touch down uh, about a block from my business.
0: You don't mean like recorded history in October. You mean at all. Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Mile and a
1: half wide on the ground for almost 40 minutes.
0: That's unbelievable. Yet
1: somehow only an EF2.
0: Um. Yeah, apparently they don't count your fences as damage.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I lost a lot of fence. Uh, luckily, I still had the roof on the building. Nice. Though that was not a given.
0: Oh, my Lord.
1: Yeah, so that was, uh, that was fun. Went out and uh, with some help from family was trying to get the fence out of the road and sidewalk and everywhere. And using the forklift to do that and... Then, of course, since it had rained a lot during that storm, we got the forklift buried to its axle in mud.
0: Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> awesome.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, quite a Monday.
0: Uh, wow. Okay. I saw f- and then the, the, oh.
1: this state, that there's something about this state that's really trying to... Uh, there was also a... Uh, Industrial accident a gas tank exploded while they were working on it uh, about seven-tenths of a mile from my building earlier this week And you can see the the security cameras shake and everything.
0: Oh my gosh Wow I saw some snow flurries today
1: (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately since I was still dealing with storm damage I don't have any data recording from any of that. So I don't have like the seismic signature the infrasound signature
0: Oh, Uh, man
1: Because I'm still trying to deal with, or I was trying to deal with getting the essentials (laughs) done and working. So I hadn't done anything with any instrumentation.
0: Of course. And then you miss a huge explosion. (laughs) Come on, John. Yeah. Very disappointed in you.
1: It's it's unclear if my electric field sensor was running during the tornado or not. Oh. (laughs) Uh, It dropped off the network about the time that happened.
0: Hmm. Coincidence?
1: (laughs) Uh, So I don't know if we have any good data there or not.
0: So your salad bowls in the uh, auto shop next door?
1: <laughs> no, that actually, the part of the fence that it's mounted on is fine. Oh. But I'm not sure what happened. But yeah, I, I haven't got out there. It's been a little over a week now, and I still haven't got out there to work on that instrument.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's never a dull moment, right? <laughs>
1: Not at all <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a close call I was worried uh, our house was well out of the path of the tornado But mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought wind-driven hail was going to bust out one of our windows Oh
0: my gosh That's uh, that's nothing to, you know You have to be cognizant of that We've had some pretty crazy windstorms We had some pea-sized wind-driven hail And even that was, you know, doing some scratchy damage to stuff I can't imagine the size you guys probably had
1: I, I am not sure how big it was.
0: Big enough to be scary.
1: <laughs> it, it was big enough to go, hmm. <laughs> if, if this if this persists for more than a few more seconds, we should move.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, one thing that we didn't have going on us this week was fires.
1: <laughs> Thank goodness.
0: <Ooh. laughs> so since we covered all the other natural disasters... I figured that was maybe something we could talk about
1: (laughs) yes because uh wildfires i mean they're obviously the very big ones in california uh, Mm -hmm. right now but many areas in the country are susceptible to wildfires i mean you in oklahoma have had some really crazy ones that just destroyed neighborhoods
0: yeah we had one of the biggest ones in our state's history a couple years ago and then we actually got evacuated from our house. I mean, it was a voluntary evacuation. We, we were only a block from the required evacu- evacuation, you know, like cops in our neighborhood and everything. Um, and we had a grass fire that was less than a quarter mile away from us. And when we looked at our backyard, we couldn't see our shop, which is maybe, what, like 200 feet from our back door? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And we couldn't see it. So it was really scary. <laughs> it's a real weird thing to like look at your kid and be like get everything that you get everything that you want to not burn up
1: right <laughs> you know that you can carry
0: that you can carry <laughs> yeah, exactly which is also a really fun experiment just to see so we saved the nintendo <laughs> <laughs> obviously and like two books and a baseball hat and yeah so there you go <laughs> all right uh-huh but um I mean, lots of people are worried about this. And so now I pay a little bit more attention to fire season now that I have property and I'm worried about that. As I imagined, we were just talking before we were recording about property insurance and all that rigmarole. Um, so it's something I pay attention to. And I have to pay attention to it, obviously, when I'm out in Colorado teaching field camp and since we're going into fire season, I thought if people haven't thought about this, it might be something cool to just draw attention to how much actual science goes into like fire forecasting, because it's a lot.
1: Yeah, it's not just, oh, hot, dry, windy, good chance of fire.
0: <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and
1: this is also something that firefighters are very highly educated on.
0: Uh Yeah, so you'll be able to speak to this, obviously, more than... I will. But I mean, this is a lot to educate on. I mean, I found so much stuff and went down so many wiki holes for all this, you know, modeling and all the things that we're calculating. Um, But, but yeah, you're right. So this was in my mind, not because of all the other stuff happening to us, but because obviously, you know, the Getty fire, the Kincaid, the Easy Fire, all of that in um, California right now is a big deal. And this is the time of year for these to happen, so it's not exactly unusual.
1: Right. I mean, there isn't really a fire season, but they are more prevalent now.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's always hot and dry and gross out there.
1: Right. And really, if you go back to the basics, uh, you have to have something, this is the real name, the fire triforce.
0: No, that's not a real thing.
1: That's a Type it into Google right now as you're listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Fire Triforce. Is this going to be like a video game? Oh, No. No, no, but it is totally The Legend of Zelda.
1: (laughs) Yes, it it does sort of look like that. Uh, So it is the ingredients to get a fire, right? You have to have fuel. Mm -hmm. You have to have oxygen. Uh And you have to have heat or an ignition source.
0: Uh so when I was reading this thing I what did they call it? that ignition source had a great name in some of this stuff It was like um what was it So yep obviously you need that ignition source they called it a fire something fire brand <laughs>
1: hmm, okay yeah Yeah
0: I know I was like oh I just thought that was a a fiery person but okay
1: <laughs> And you can so The fuel is, if you've got grass, if you've got leaves, if you've got trees, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oxygen, given that we're on the surface of planet Earth, that's a given. Yes. Uh, You're not in an enclosed building or an enclosed tank or some situation where you could actually run out of oxygen to feed your fire. Right. Uh And then, I mean, though we're doing the best we can, but. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's for sure. uh, (laughs) Yeah. but you're gonna have oxygen and so you just need something to start it and this could be lightning that's a very common ignition source uh-huh. yep. uh, it could be somebody throwing a cigarette butt at a window also a very common ignition source
0: um one of them that people don't think about at all is when there's dry grass and you pull over on the side of the road or yep. if you go off-roading because you're a geologist and you want to go look at something and your hot engine is rubbing on all this grass that's dry Yeah.
1: That can start a fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, sources like volcanoes, that's always an answer.
0: Yeah. Volcanoes are the answer for everything. You're correct. Um. Uh,
1: Those can start (laughs) fire. But you can also have things that, like, power lines. Yeah. It's kind of a touchy subject right now. I
0: think it is kind of a touchy subject from what I gathered out in California. So power lines that haven't had any work done on them and are getting blown over in winds where maybe if they had been properly you know worked on in the past decade <laughs> that they wouldn't be so susceptible to falling down and then causing these fires i think that's a big deal going on well, right now
1: that's the whole court case where yeah. pg&e is going to potentially be liable mm-hmm. right for some exactly. of the fires last year and so this year they said "Well, we're preemptively shutting off power to these large segments
0: yeah which is a whole other thing <laughs>
1: Yeah Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) but you can start these fires lots of ways
0: Yeah you sure can But that wind part that we talked about And um, as we were talking about You know it's not just the weather conditions But that's a huge thing But these winds especially in California They even have their own name Because they happen a lot And they coincide with sort of the drier season And are really bad for fires And these of course are the Santa Ana winds
1: Right And so we've we've sort of talked about catabatic or downslope winds before,
0: correct, a couple times, I think,
1: yeah, and so you get a adiabatic ish process happening <laughs> uh-huh. as air comes rushing down from higher altitudes, it is being compressed and therefore warmed, and it's also just dumped all of its moisture coming over the mountain,
0: yeah, mhm. Uh-huh. And so, so a hot, dry wind. Yeah, yeah, devil winds, as they call it. Um, and the high pressure that it's blowing from is in the Great Basin region in Nevada. And so as all that cool air comes into that higher region, that's where you set up that high pressure cell. That's why it blows towards the somewhere else. It wants to blow towards low pressure. And like you just said, it's that catabatic wind process blowing towards the ocean, you know, where everyone lives. And it it's hot. And it's super dry, and relative humidity is one of those things that's sort of the catalyst for are you going to have a good, bad, good fire weather day or a bad fire weather day based on that. Um, and so these Santa Ana winds, though, they're not the same, not exactly the same as the Chinook winds or the Fern winds that we've talked about because those usually have precip associated with them. These are just hot, dry winds. You're pretty far away from that high pressure system, but they're bad news.
1: Absolutely, and I—I I will say, fire weather is one of the few times where I would rather see a relative humidity ob than a dew point.
0: Yes, yes, and I'm gonna have we—we need to explain the differences between these things, right? Because I think people don't quite understand what relative humidity is. I know we've probably done that before, but
1: right. So the the dew point is exactly what it says. It's what temperature. <laughs> What I have to cool, let's say, thinking about how some instruments work, what temperature would I have to cool a mirror down to, to where we get condensation out of the atmosphere onto it?
0: Right. Exactly. And so relative humidity is a, this percentage measure, right, of how much water vapor is in the atmosphere based on how much water vapor you could hold in the atmosphere, Right.
1: Right. And that changes with temperature. So the relative humidity, if you have a temperature of 32 and relative humidity of 70, that's much different than a temperature of 96 and a relative humidity of 70.
0: Right. Correct.
1: In terms of amount of water vapor, which is why meteorologists and purists are like, well, I just want temperature and dew point obs. Relative humidity means nothing. Uh, (laughs) That's great unless you're a physical process like fire that actually cares.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and so that's one of those things, you know, it's it's so crazy. The hu- I didn't understand the importance of humidity, I think. I definitely didn't understand it till I had to do a skew T log P diagram. And then working in Colorado versus working in Oklahoma, I'm sure you're back in Arkansas and now your nose doesn't bleed every night.
1: <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's yeah, amazing. It's
0: crazy. <laughs> but I didn't realize the importance of you know relative humidity and all these models there are a lot of models for fire danger like this is not a yeah this isn't like every weather service office just looks at stuff like there's huge like national fire danger ratings and observations and products that come out there's a lot of products
1: yeah and there's a lot of people that go into this Uh, This whole system with lots of indices and you really care if you're a firefighter out on the line You want to know at what rate can I expect this to spread? Is it a spotting risk? Is it going to? Is it going to launch these little fires out ahead of it? Or can I effectively, you know dig a fire trench or do a backburn? To stop this fire or is that a waste of my time or is the backburn going to get out of control?
0: Mm -hmm. Do I have to call in the helicopter with that creepy red stuff and? Blow retardant everywhere. You need to do that. Um, yeah, the fire that got close to our house was one of those little jumpers. And, you know, I, you're watching on TV basically the helicopter above your neighborhood. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then they're like, oh, look, this fire just started 10 feet away and it's off. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's the one that's going to get us. Cool.
1: Well, and especially if you're in a resource constrained environment, like you only have so many trucks or so mm-hmm. many helicopters. You need to know where the fire is going to be when the resources can meet it.
0: Right. So you're living in a city and you're like, yeah, there's fire hydrants everywhere. And so this is a huge thing when we got our home insurance. So kids who haven't bought a house yet and are looking to. Um, This is crazy. How far you are from a fire hydrant is the difference of $1,000 a year and $4,000 a year.
1: I completely believe it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we're in that situation where we live cause, just because we're sort of far away and we're kind of in between all these places. Um, so yeah, so all these products are really important. <laughs> and you probably have seen, you know, this all came out. There's a National Fire Danger Rating System, right? And we've got links to all this um, in our show notes if you want to see these things. And this is the... The thing you see if you're going to, say, a national forest, and there's that sign with Smokey Bear, and he's got a little dial, and it says, Today's fire risk is, you know, low, moderate, high, very high, or extreme.
1: Right, and for that simple system, there's a ton of inputs.
0: (laughs) I know, which I think is really funny, because it's just like, oh, is it green, yellow, orange, or red? Okay, That's what this is. And it's not like somebody just like walking outside and like licking their finger and seeing how fast it dries and then moving it to red instead of orange.
1: (laughs) Right. And I also don't think people appreciate who does this. Yes, that is probably true. So the weather service plays a large role Mm -hmm. in fire weather forecasting as do people at say like the storm prediction center. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that system specifically is developed and maintained by the Forest Service, which is part of the USDA or the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I don't think that people necessarily think of Department of Agriculture as uh, much yeah. more than, you know, soil testing. or so. No, no, they do a ton <laughs> for most. public safety.
0: Right, exactly. And, I mean, there are, in the academy, it seems like everyone always wants a research center, right? But there are centers all over the country you know, focusing on fire weather, you know, the, South, the Southwest Coordination Center is one that I linked in here just because they have a really good website um, with these maps and daily briefings and, you know, all kinds of, they have their current conditions, essentially little mesonet stations, so higher density um, meteorology stations set up by the Forest Service in many cases. Right. And then precip and smoke monitoring and all this other stuff. And lots of meteorologists are employed at these places as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the tools that's also underappreciated, though, meteorologists see it and they're like, oh, cool, uh, is using satellite data.
0: Yeah. Um, Some of these indices, I didn't know how much satellite data went into... um, Making these indices which we'll get to here in a minute. but That was very interesting to me something I learned for sure
1: Well, and you can also just pull up an infrared map And play pick the fires
0: <laughs> Well, that was just for fun. I didn't realize you know you use that for real
1: <laughs> Oh, so they uh There have been fires that have been reported in very rural areas By a national weather service forecast office before anyone else because they saw it. On
0: oh IR. That's great.
1: And it's especially possible now with uh, the new series of GOES satellites giving us these updates every minute.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can even you can start talking about rates in that case. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is great. Um, when you go to these websites, though, there are a lot of, even for someone that's maybe a weather weenie or thinks they're, you know, really into geoscience stuff there's some words that i have to obviously look up because this fire weather thing is its own beast like this is its own beast
1: are you not used to looking at greenness maps
0: <laughs> hey so now that one i love <laughs> <laughs> how are you going to go leaf peeping if you don't look at a relative greenness map john <laughs> <laughs> but i will say that fuel moisture was one i had to look up
1: <laughs> yes
0: <Yeah. laughs> i'm used to soil moisture that makes sense <laughs> Relative greenness even makes sense. Fuel moisture, yeah.
1: Well, fuel moisture is a fun one, but we'll get there.
0: We will get there. Um. So I just looked at obviously the Oklahoma mesonet is a big deal, (laughs) and so I took a lot of this stuff. What we're going to talk about is directly from looking at their Oklahoma fire danger model that they have, and this is what the link is to. But I know a lot of this comes from federal work that's been done by the Weather Service and the Forest Service, especially.
1: Right. Um, And so some of the factors that go into it, we've already talked about relative humidity, your RH. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've mentioned wind speed and direction.
0: Obviously, you want to know that.
1: Right. And also, this is where having some meteorological knowledge, like we're about to have a frontal passage, passage, and uh, the wind is about to flip on me, and the fire is going to come back and engulf my equipment.
0: I thought that people, you know, paid attention to that kind of stuff, but the number of people in my rural neighborhood that will start the day that's very nice with no wind by burning stuff, not knowing that what I know, which is, you know, two hours from now, the wind's going to be from the other direction at 900 times the speed blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It blows my mind. They're like, oh, no, it's fine. We'll just burn this whole pile of trash. Okay, well, that's going to turn around here in two hours. So, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah, so you need to know that stuff.
1: And then, uh, so relative greenness.
0: Right. Obviously, how green is stuff? So the big deal, you know, fires that happen in the spring are a lot different than fires that happen in the fall and the winter.
1: Right In the spring, you've got green leaves that are holding a lot of moisture. They're more resistant to burning. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the fall, you've got a lot of very dry, flammable leaves on the trees. And in the winter, you've got a lot of very dry, flammable leaves on the ground.
0: On the ground. And all of this goes into these models. All the difference of where the dry, crunchy stuff is, where's your fuel... And even how the fuel reacts to precipitation. But again, getting ahead of ourselves. So this first one is one of those satellite measures, which is really cool. Um, So relative greenness is a percentage measured from 0 to 100%. And what they do is they look at, obviously this isn't a person looking at this, (laughs) but.
1: Yes, these are the machines.
0: Yes, I imagine at one time it might have been. Um, (laughs) You look at a square kilometer pixel of land and you look at the color in relation to, I have no idea why these numbers, a 16-year historical database of greenness values for that same pixel.
1: So <laughs> part of me says that probably coincides with something, something Landsat.
0: Okay, that's that's what I wondered. I wondered um, if you would know that. 1989 the,
1: through 2004 was that number. Yeah, we got Landsat back in the 70s, though. Um the nerdy part of me hopes that it's because it's a power of two (laughs) and it made like some computational algorithm more efficient.
0: (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) Uh,
1: But anyway, so 89 to four, uh, I'm very curious how as urban development becomes faster, Mm -hmm. how this index becomes biased in certain locations. Like, these were trees, now they're houses. It's always going to show up very dry.
0: Very dry. Right. Yeah, exactly. I wondered that, too. And it's like, do they just not count that? Do they? And 2004, it's like we don't have more satellite data than that.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, at at that point, even even climate change.
0: That was the next thing I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. From 89 to now, mm mm-hmm and we're gonna have a lot more extremes so what's that gonna do for what this relative greenness number even means you know right oh no it's it's interesting because it's like i can remember 2011 where we mowed our lawn literally three times all year and you know this year we mowed three times a week right (laughs) so yeah This sounds like
1: it's probably a topic that there are half a dozen PhD candidates working on.
0: Oh, that's probably true. Um, I love this relative greenness map, but this is kind of cool to look at too, you know, especially if you drive across your state like I do a bunch. um, And it's neat to look at and be like, oh, okay. so by the time I get out here, you know, these fields will probably all be brown or, you know, hey, these trees might be starting to turn over towards your neck of the woods in the eastern part. So this is kind of a cool map. I've actually looked at this map not in relation to fire before.
1: Right. So the next thing is the burning index.
0: I had no clue what this was.
1: So the burning index, uh, you, (laughs) it's an index. Many things go into it. Mm -hmm. Index is code for arbitrary fudge-factored number that seems to mean something.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) i mean think
1: about it well we'll, oh um
0: lifted indexes uh (laughs) uh-huh lifted
1: index total totals yeah like all of those things are these seem to be important factors so we put them together with some weights and through a large number of observations figured out what ranges of this number are good and bad (laughs)
0: lifted index of minus 12 oh my god so, <laughs> but this one's burning index of 110. Oh my god,
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, the burning index you look at things like the fuel type, which there are many ways to characterize fuel types mm-hmm. yeah. is it residential grass? Is it tall forest grass? Is it leafy vegetation? Is it unpacked forest floor duff? Is it packed forest floor duff? <laughs> um. <laughs> Anyway, yes. so all these things go into it, including the current weather conditions, right? Uh, and you get a number that has been finally honed uh, <laughs> to be roughly ten times the flame height.
0: And so, flame height is. <laughs> mm-hmm. You explain this to me. You're you done firefighter stuff?
1: Well, so, so the so, so the flame height is how high are the flames at the head? At the, at the the front line of the fire,
0: and so that makes a difference is where you're looking at it too, which I figured out from all of this. Um, so a lot oh, of oh yeah, things... no,
1: sorry, yeah, it does. It's it's <laughs> a, the very where right. unburned territory meets fire,
0: right? Exactly, and it's for what you were talking about earlier. Like you want to know that because where do you attack the fire? Do you attack and it? how exactly straight on? You know, or what you're talking about? You know, doing these digging these ditches and all this other stuff that you have to do. Because it always blew my mind when I was little, like starting a fire to fight a fire oh yeah you know i'm like "Mm, backburns yeah i'm like this doesn't nope until you kind of watch it happen then you're like oh yeah nope that did work
1: (laughs) yep or bringing in forest service bulldozers and bulldozing a big fire line and taking a ripper and digging a trench
0: Mm -hmm. yeah this is all super interesting so that's where like this is like so if you take the burning index divided by 10 that's the flame length in feet at the head of the fire. Um, And so this is how, it's like the intensity, this burning index relates to the intensity of the fire. So sort of they use this, I'm gathering, as a way to determine how to fight it, right?
1: At a very large scale.
0: At a large scale, which I was actually surprised at the largeness of this scale versus the specificity of the index numbers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so part of the problem is this will tell you from, I don't know, from one area of a national forest to the other, which one's going to be a bigger uh-oh if it catches on fire.
0: Right. But, man, when you read, like, the stuff, it's like it seems so very specific. But, yeah, it's not because these models are square kilometer grids.
1: Right. But you, you think about, okay, somebody had to go through and classify the fuel type. Oh, yeah. For every square kilometer.
0: Yeah, that's true. Thank you. So, if you wanted to do it, of... it at,
1: at like a park scale, yeah, that's a lot of work.
0: That's why we have undergrads, John. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my fair share of these kind of tasks. I just want to get that out there for anyone who thinks I'm making fun of undergrads. I'm not. I've been there literally right. in the trenches counting these dumb pixels.
1: <laughs> uh, yep. I, I've definitely talked yep. to people that have had jobs measuring trees per. 10 Mm -hmm. by 10 meter box.
0: Yep. So there you go. (laughs) Uh,
1: The, the other thing is when you're on a fire scene, a lot of times you will be making these kind of observation or the scene commander probably is the person that would be doing this, uh, making these observations and saying, okay, where we are, we have this type of fuel and plugging these numbers into a, well, it used to be a, uh, a nomogram. Mm hmm right N- now it's an app
0: now it's yeah <laughs> uh we used to Aww. go plug these
1: things onto your nomogram and do, do your slide rule magic
0: exactly uh
1: but but now you plug it into an app and it tells you these things
0: and so this number i mean the other the relative greenness is percent that makes sense and so like this number if you have a burning index of less than 40 that means your flame length is four feet and so they say that's a hand line you could fight it head on right there probably by hand but then if you get like a burning index of 110 your flame length is 11 and that's classified as major fire runs probable and head of fire control efforts ineffective
1: yeah so that means you're not going to be able to stop it where it's burning you're going to need to take something like a backburn or a big trench or spreading flame retardant right yeah
0: get the helicopters
1: So then we have to look at, now that we know how tall the flames are going to be, the next thing that you really, really, really care about is how (laughs) fast are they going to move.
0: So again, spread and ignition components, understood those words, did not understand what they meant in terms of the maps I was looking at. But, I mean, easily understandable.
1: Yeah, so spread is how many feet per minute the fire is going to advance at the head.
0: Okay, that's a great thing to know. It's a fantastic
1: thing to know, and it uh can change really fast.
0: Right, because obviously wind speed and direction are a huge deal for this.
1: Right, and it's no joke when people have those little portable fire shelters and have to use them. Because the fire is overtaking them faster than they can get out of the way.
0: Oh, that's so crazy to think, and terrible. Uh, Moisture content obviously is going to go into this as well and as we said earlier and i'll keep saying because every one of my points has the word fropa in it um basically is that you know you have to be very very tuned in to your frontal passages during these sort of weather events
1: right um yeah it's all dependent on what the i dare say mesoscale (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> weather is
0: almost micro scale yeah <laughs> well when i was in my backyard i was worried about the micro scale weather so you know
1: <laughs> right and then so the next thing is how easy is it to start the fire
0: mm-hmm. so ignition component is just a probability then zero to a hundred
1: yeah and if it's a hundred that means any ignition source will require immediate suppression
0: oh So don't drive your hot engine over tall, dry grass. Don't do it.
1: Right. Um, And fire is a a whole other example of a very interesting probabilistic process. But Based on the (laughs) Triforce. Based on the (laughs) Triforce. So fuel moisture is one that we've talked about. It's actually really complicated.
0: Uh, yeah, (laughs) this was one of the only like, okay, you can click on this and you can see this map. And then here is this paragraph that tells you what this map means. And then here's some supplemental material (laughs) (laughs) to help you graph this. Uh, yeah. So there was a bunch of this. Um, so this is percentage moisture content on a dead fuel where the moisture content is controlled by changing environmental conditions, which obviously if you're looking at dead grass, What can you do to dead grass? Well, if you're going to rain on it or if you're not going to rain on it, that makes a difference because dead wet grass is harder to light than dead dry grass. And also temp and relative humidity. And this comes up with some weird things because you have maps for fuel moisture based on 1 hour, 10 hour, 100 hour, and 1,000 hour fuels.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's logarithmic because... It's nature, and things are sort of logarithmic. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, But say, say a freshly fallen off the tree, still semi-waxy leaf gets rained on versus last year's leaf or a bunch of Bermuda grass mm-hmm. that's mowed. One of those things is going to dry out a lot quicker than the other. So the still sort of waxy fresh leaf is going to be a one-hour fuel in that one hour after rain, it's ready to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas a two-foot thick layer of Bermuda grass (laughs) um, might take more like 10 hours or 100 hours to dry out to the point where we worry about it.
0: Right. But big, tall grasses without duff, as you said earlier, you know those could be one-hour fuels. So just because it's grass doesn't is going to make it a different type of fuel based on what type of grass it is, how much it is, all that stuff in between it. And so those will go into these different one-hour, ten-hour, hundred-hour fuel moisture graphs.
1: And again, it's largely influenced by the immediate weather.
0: Yeah. And this is creepy, which because I'm always like, okay. It's all right that my neighbor has this huge thing burning pointed towards my house because the frontal passage is going to happen. and It's going to rain, so it'll be fine. But that's actually, you know, this is something you want to pay attention to because this is directly related to that changing current weather conditions, right? Because even if you have a rain, if you your one-hour dead fuel moistures are low, then you could still get a fire.
1: Well, if you've got tall, not densely packed prairie grass, and it rains on it, and then after the frontal passage, it, it gusts at 50 miles an hour, yeah. it's going to dry out real fast.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it doesn't matter when you drive your car over it. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's interesting. So this fuel moisture map, I would have thought that they would have looked at soil moisture, which they do, but this one seems to be of
1: way more value well we don't burn the soil
0: yeah 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 (laughs) but the plants are in the soil so that's why i thought
1: (laughs) okay fair
0: yeah plant available moisture which is a thing that you talk about a lot when you're talking about fire weather because plants are fuel
1: right Mm -hmm. um so that that soil moisture i don't know there's there's lots of ways to measure (laughs) soil moisture
0: oh my gosh yeah I um and there's so many different levels of soil moisture too
1: well and that's what SMAP was supposed to do that Mm -hmm. satellite yeah with its active transmitter that self-destructed oops so now it's just a passive instrument so we're not getting really good soil moisture I mean it's a whole satellite whose purpose was to map soil moisture Mm -hmm. uh not so much now
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oops
1: but so, soil moisture is a big deal there's lots of ways you can measure it uh, mm-hmm. it's one of those variables kind of like fuel classification and like so you have a point measurement of soil moisture if i walk three feet i'm in a drainage ditch and it's totally different
0: right yeah exactly
1: if i walk half a mile it's totally different and mm-hmm. you have e- even with an impressive project that has hundreds of stations across the state Eh. like it's a it's a great <laughs> large scale thing to measure right but mm-hmm. if you are on the scene of a fire in a region of a township and range you're gonna be subject to those little minor local scale variabilities
0: and you don't have time to set up your you know em thing to figure it out <laughs>
1: And and I'm not saying that it's useless to have these observations. No, it's very helpful. Oh yeah. But I'm still saying it's unless you have a very very large scale fire, it's it's a guideline, a rule of thumb.
0: This one isn't the most important thing that you're looking at. Um, right. What I thought was interesting is that they do look at it more during the growing season, not during sort of the fire season, which is now that we're coming into. Um, so when you talk about percentage. When it's low in May through October, that means you have live fuel moisture is low and can burn, but you also have low soil moisture, and it means you're not producing more fuels. So I didn't, you know, none of these, all these other ones are like, I've got this fire, what do I do? But this one kind of helps you plan for the upcoming season more. is, I feel like this is more of a predictor not an immediate predictor like this is what my soil moisture is so it's going to be bad fire tomorrow it's like oh well this is what my soil moisture has been during you know the growing season and so that means i'm going to have more or less fuel available during fire season yes yeah so this Uh, is kind of just like you said like large scale but also maybe sort of like long term as well
1: and also you know i've was talking to my uh some of my relatives that are in the farming industry and the combines now are monitoring. So they're plotting on uh, like different GIS type tools, what the moisture was in the product that they were harvesting how many bushels they were getting. and All this information is measured every second by the combine. Because they were showing me on these maps, like, well, we can see we got less yield here, so there's a dip in the field there, and it was too wet, so we're going to fix that for next time. Wow. On a row-by-row, every-second basis, they can tell you exactly what's going on with those fields.
0: (laughs) And It's like a Fitbit for your combine. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, they put an iPad up there and take off.
0: That's impressive. That's super impressive how those tiny little variations can be the difference, you know, in hundreds, if not more dollars. That's really interesting.
1: And though I will say the default color map in this app is still Jet.
0: Of course it is.
1: <laughs> uh, somebody pointed out during our last workshop, if you use the Seaborn plotting package in Python and you try to use the Jet color map, it uh, it actually fails and issues an error message that just says No.
0: I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um, If you don't know why that's bad, I'm sure we've done a show about this, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, I know we've at least talked about it, but yes, I will save that rant. We'll do do a show about it. (laughs) The the last thing that you had on the list is one that I never have really bothered looking at, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's the drought index, the, the KBDI
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh I love things that have arbitrary units. <laughs> it's zero to eight hundred, like that's what you measure the KBDI with. It's
1: like it's like, you know, the S A T.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. Which changes, turns out. I remember somebody recently told me that, you know, their G R U score was like a hundred and seventy. And I was like, Oh oh boy, that's terrible. And I didn't realize they you know, they've changed the G R E. Because it used Little to bit. be, yeah, used to be out of 800. And I thought, wow, I didn't think you were that bad. But <laughs> <laughs> So knowing your range of units for the thing you're looking at is important is what I'm getting at.
1: <laughs> right. Um, but this is really not something that you look at to say, how's the fire going to behave? It's another one of those, how are my crops going to grow this year? how is the fuel supply going to be this year
0: right yeah exactly so this was soil moisture is just something you keep an eye on for the upcoming fire season really and i thought this was really interesting it's based on this arbitrary eight inches of water in different things like soil litter or duff basically and so if you have a kbdi of 800 it means your eight inches of water is gone and all your plant available water is removed so big numbers bad (laughs) Small number's good.
1: Arbitrary. (laughs) uh, Okay.
0: (laughs) And it's inches. Does that hurt you too?
1: (laughs) Well, everything that we look at in the firefighting world here is going to be in Imperial units.
0: All Imperial units, exactly. Because three-meter fire doesn't sound as scary as 11-foot fire.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, working with somebody now who's been trained almost exclusively in the metric system,
0: <gasps>
1: oh. Um I realize how much of that I still like to me it's nothing to say five eighths of an inch. Right. hmm Or you know, start pretty much every eighth of an inch, I know the decimal equivalent. Mm-hmm. And can go to the nearest one. Or do okay, you know, what what's eleven and three quarters over two? Mm-hmm. But working with somebody who's only used the metric system one it's mind blowing to them why anybody would not use the metric system, <laughs> which I agree
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great
1: But two, they they don't always seem to realize why uh, things that don't come out to round numbers in imperial units make me twitch a little sometimes
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny <laughs> Yeah I love it. 800, anyway. 800. Okay, great. <laughs> 800.
1: 800-somethings. 800
0: yeah, it's bad.
1: <laughs> it's bad, yes. Um. But we'll put some links in the show notes to where you can go look at some of these fire weather maps. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more. There are so many. Uh, I think Fossberg Fire Index is another one. There's a bunch of different fire indices out there.
0: And also for people looking for jobs, this is totally... Cat, i sound like an old lady the wave of the future some of these fire index maps i mean it's all g well no the good ones not all of them the good ones are these great interactive gis tools i mean those are the fantastic maps that are out here and i have a link to some of those that are that are super impressive
1: yeah and this is also a great uh a great introduction to why spending money on measuring things out in the world matters right because someday these measurements could be the difference between a fire getting stopped before it burns your house down or afterwards and why we need to continue to fund these kind of things Mm
0: -hmm. yeah exactly um yeah and i mean it's fun to play with those maps too (laughs) that's true (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's totally beside the point but it's not though because that's how people can get hooked on this stuff and be like oh yeah that's why this is you know important
1: but i don't I, as sometimes as people who are obsessed with weather because it's weather yeah uh we forget things like the oklahoma mesonet has a massive impact mm-hmm. um, they produce maps of uh temperature stress on cows
0: yeah mm-hmm. it's
1: another one of these arbitrary things but it is good guidance and to saves, cattle farmers yeah of hey you need to be worried about your your uh your cows tonight
0: yeah cold or warm yeah uh, and it's completely free millions of dollars millions of dollars and it's free data yeah we're gonna have to have a show about heating and cooling degree days because that is another weirdly arbitrary thing i don't understand but we'll get there <laughs>
1: Yeah. So in the meantime, go look at uh, some of these maps. But I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay. Did you love this? Uh,
1: I, I did. It's a great Halloween paper.
0: <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> um, So <laughs> this is... In the Journal of Experimental Biology.
1: My new favorite journal. (laughs) Sounds
0: like the best biology. (laughs) In vitro strain in human metacarpal bones during striking. Testing the pugilism hypothesis of hominin hand evolution by Horns et al.
1: Which is the lengthy (laughs) way of saying cadaver arms plus guitar tuners plus (laughs) having them punch things.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't want to laugh. There's this big deal. This is why I can't be a biologist, right? Like, you know, where you're using cadavers to do stuff, you're, it's not supposed to be funny, but this is kind of funny.
1: So the, the, the idea is our hands are weirdly proportioned compared to other animals in terms of finger length, thumb length, and palm size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and Did so- we evolve this so that we could be both dexterous and able to knock somebody's lights out.
0: Yes. <laughs> I I so the way this is written makes me wonder if, if this was like a personal vendetta to write this paper. Do you think that's true? Did you feel this?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where after reading it, I get the idea of there's been a decade of nerd fights at this one conference. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that only involved slapping, not punching. With a what are they? There's a great, great way they talk about having a balled up fist. (laughs) Great.
1: So, but but really, we need to. If our hands, if we were just doing delicate tasks with them, Mm -hmm. we should have long, narrow, bony fingers. Right. You can't hit somebody and not break all those delicate little fingers, though. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we should just have a big club hand. (laughs)
0: but we can't pick lice out of our hair with a big club hand
1: so instead of getting one of each uh we decided evolutionarily to get these in between hands
0: one of each (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) i think that would have been a great
1: look at a lobster that's true Um, But we did not go down that path, which would have been very interesting in terms of keyboard and human-machine interface design. (laughs) So true. Uh, But we went down this path of these mm, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none hand designs.
0: Uh, So the part that I thought felt like a vendetta is because they go into... So the question is, like, do we have fists to fight with? Like, is that why our design makes it such that when you ball up your hand and hit something with it, what are you, what are you doing? Are you going to break stuff? Is it so delicate that you're breaking it? So therefore this would not be a way that we fight, but it turns. And so they took these cadaver arms to figure out whether that was true or not. Uh, But they said that (laughs) this was the part that seemed angry is, is this true of our biology Is this the way that humans evolved to either show (laughs) dudes, uh, you know, male, male competition by by fisticuffs, essentially, and is like fighting in our fighting in this way in our DNA. Right. And it turns out, I mean, they have a wealth of examples that, yes, this is what we did. And it goes so far as to talk about how, you know, the roots, the Greek and even further back, um, roots of these words for arms, like we call weapons arms today, is because that was our original weapon, was our fist.
1: Yep. Big meat clubs.
0: (laughs) It's so weird. They talk about, um, you know, the importance of clenched fists to human aggression is reflected in the role that it plays in threat displays. And this is super interesting. And they talk about how, like, game theory modeling of these aggressive encounters suggests that threat displays provide an honest indication of one's fighting ability. So it's like if you think about getting mad, and if you're trying to – I think about this in terms of my daughter. Like, if you're trying to teach emotions, like, what is the thing you do to show mad? And you clench your fists up, and you make your mouth into this weird rectangle – (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is what i was thinking about like reading this paper and they're saying well threat displays like that's a threat i haven't punched anybody but i've sure as heck made a whole lot of fists in my life and angry rectangle mouths (laughs) probably did it this morning i don't know
1: have you said the phrase knuckle sandwich recently
0: (laughs) more recent than i'd like to admit (laughs) (laughs) but it says that these threat displays you know provide clues to how you're gonna fight Which makes perfect sense. A dog bears its teeth at you because when it's going to fight you, it's going to bite you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so what they want to do is see, okay, how much is our hand reducing strain on our bones when we make a fist? Uh So to do that, you need strain gauges.
0: I thought you'd be real excited about this part.
1: I, I read the method section out loud after dinner tonight.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. See, and I just skimmed it because I knew this was going to be all you. So you go so, for it. <laughs> uh,
1: first of all, they attached fishing line of different tensile strings uh, to different tendons and then used guitar tuners, oh. little tuning pegs to tension the fishing line.
0: I mean, it makes sense. That's the perfect thing to do.
1: So that's how you set your hand to be a fist or whatever. And these hands were frozen until they used them
0: as hands are (laughs) Uh, not embalmed well yeah because that wouldn't work
1: and then they said that to put (laughs) there are no pictures in the paper there are sketches Mm -hmm. of the experimental setup yeah Uh, and this is why i believe uh implementing the ventral surface of the second uh, or no, sorry, instrumenting the ventral surface of the second metacarpal was a relatively destructive process. <laughs> oh, gosh. Because <laughs> um, you think about it, you you have to open up the hand to be able to get to these bones, the little bones that connect your your fingies to your palm. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be able to glue a strain gauge on them and oh. run the wires out. Oh, it's not going to be a pretty thing. She
0: has some creepy skeleton bionic looking stuff happening.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then they set your this, this arm with the wires running out from the string gauges and the guitar tuner pegs <laughs> on a platform and hinge it above so it makes a pendulum.
0: Okay. Much like you would when you're going to swing and fisticuff somebody in the face.
1: Right. Okay. And then at the bottom of this pendulum stroke, when the arm is parallel to the ground was a face. <laughs> no. It was the, the digital <laughs> equivalent of a face. Okay. <laughs>
0: um,
1: the little pad that has accelerometers in it to measure the impact so we know how hard this thing hit uh-huh. and what the strain on the bone was. Uh-huh. Um, and then that pad would swing away, much like if you punch somebody, and they had some clever tricks with moving the mass out to increase the... The, uh, the torque moment so that it didn't just spin around when it got hit.
0: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And pretty much what they get out of this <laughs> is a, a graph of strain on the bone versus force of the hit. So they did this a bunch of times. They would pull the pendulum back a little and let it go, and then more, and then let it go, then and more, then let it go, then more, then let it go. And they get a graph of uh, force and strain... If we were to normalize this by area, we could make it a graph of stress versus strain, which at the rock mechanics world, we know is the Mm -hmm. modulus. Yep, there you go. Uh, So we're pretty much finding the modulus of your hand in different positions. (gasps) How much do the bones compress under a given amount of force when your hand is held in different positions?
0: Oh, this is so strange. But, I mean, it talks about, like, which digit you're going to hit with first, and is it designed that those aren't you know the little weak ones because you're gonna hit with your you know what it's number two and three right your first two fingers
1: you have number two and three and a lot of that gets transferred to your thumb and then Mm -hmm. out to your arm very easily that way right yeah yeah and and some of these numbers seem alarming like oh my gosh a thousand micro strain well that that's (laughs) point one percent yeah so if your bone were a meter long (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Which it's not, <laughs> so if it were a meter long, uh, let's see that's what a thousand millimeters, uh, so that would be deforming by a millimeter,
0: Which is still a lot,
1: yeah, but your bone's not a meter long. true, uh, your bone is what three or four inches,
0: mm-hmm, at the most well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about guys here. this is what, all what? obviously dudes. <laughs>
1: Let, let's say four inches uh so that's a tenth of a millimeter
0: okay mm-hmm. did and you just the say strain. four inches and compare it to a tenth of a millimeter
1: yeah because i know that four inches four inches is a hundred millimeters <laughs> uh, Okay. Just, <laughs> it's one of those weird imperial things you yep, just know i just wanna, uh,
0: <laughs> i thought that was why your usage of four inches but
1: <laughs> somewhere a ruler just burst into flame <laughs>
0: i just betrayed my nerdiness by calling you out on that too but anyway
1: well you know if i gave them a modulus in terms of uh oh what can we do here um psi per micron
0: oh that's so (laughs) rough um we're gonna talk about the modulus of your face here in a
1: minute so these lines on this graph, figure two in here, the slope of those line is one over the modulus.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: But really what we ended up finding out was that uh, you can uh, hit somebody twice as hard as you can slap them for the same amount of bone strain. There you go. And if you use an unbuttressed fist, it's 55% more.
0: Unbuttressed.
1: Yeah, so the, buttress your fists.
0: That's true. That's what she got from this paper.
1: <laughs> Don't slap. Go for the full buttress fist. You get <laughs> twice the impact.
0: And please yell. I just full buttressed you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, you can that.
1: punch somebody and then say, as you're walking away, say, Horn "Hornet all 2015."
0: Can we stop now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
1: and We did have an email uh, recently from a listener saying, uh, I think it was with regards to the I paper a while back, about mm-hmm. maybe steer away from cringy things when people are listening while driving. Uh, oh. So sorry about that. But uh, in your dreams tonight, <laughs> uh, you, you uh, can see a guitar tuner. Guitar tuner cadaver hands punching you.
0: It's Halloween, everybody. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah.
1: This was an excellent paper and (laughs) makes me very curious as to (laughs) uh, what else comes out in the Journal of Experimental Biology.
0: Oh, you better believe it's the first place I'm going for next week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I i hesitate to give a listener challenge
0: (laughs) no i want the modules to your face let's see let's see it
1: (laughs) oh so one of the things they did say um in here which i thought was interesting was okay well if our fists if our hands are evolved for fighting why have our faces not evolved to handle fists better
0: yeah exactly (laughs) oh well that's where we're going probably But probably not, because if our thumbs get longer from all this texting, then it's going to throw off the buttressing effect of your fist. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's complicated.
1: Yeah. So if you've got data on the non-destructive modulus of your hand (laughs) uh, or someone else's face, (laughs) uh, you can send those results in to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Please email me your face moduli. Face. Oh, wait, no, We're show. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, we're on the Slack channel, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel on there you can come give us your graphs there as well and as always thank you to our patreon supporters and especially welcome to the new patreon supporters we really appreciate your support you may do so at patreon.com slash don't panic geo
1: and until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science